This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just uh, next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. This being Wednesday morning, we're going to do two hours of sports analytics, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern, that is. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. I mean the whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. These are faculty here at the Wharton School and good buddies of mine, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators. By a long time, I mean five and a half years. Also, this morning, special treat, Michael Salfino, our longtime friend and collaborator to Massey Peabody and renowned sports analytics journalist, Michael <laughs> Salfino, Northern Jersey resident, is in studio. Michael, good morning to yes, you. Yes, representing Jersey. Hey, Good morning. Hey, what do you think I'm from, bud? <laughs> oh, that's right. Double representation. <laughs> Double representation. <laughs> Us Texans are getting. That's pretty much way. the max that we could tolerate. <laughs> yeah, that's right. about it. And you're sandwiched right now in the studio. <laughs> We're, you guys can jump in here with us. Please do give us a shout. 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. Or you can email us. Feels a little old school now, but you can still email us. Business at com. Email us during the week or during the show. We. We monitor that thing or hit us up on Twitter. Handle on Twitter is at WMoneyBall. We're active in the world of. I had a big tweet last night and it got a lot of following. What, what counts as a big tweet, Eric? A well, big tweet. A I had a lot tweet. of letters in it. <laughs> I had a lot of letters in it, but I did get a lot of retweets from it. What was it about, Brad Lowe? Well, it was something that Audie Weiner has been saying for years on our show, which is the they were asking whether the Brewers would bring in their closer. In a high leverage situation, even though it wasn't in the ninth inning. And so the announcers finally were discussing this is what analytics would say. And so I thought it was fantastic. And so I tweeted, we're getting somewhere because the Brewers are considering bringing in their closer. This is before the closer came in and blew the game. But <laughs> what, a, what a victory for analytics. <laughs> <laughs> but as you know, it, uh, Shane, it's about the process. No, that's I right. I just thought, that's right. finally, <laughs> these were announcers that were having actually spent during the inning. They were having a discussion of bringing the closer in the high leverage situation, not necessarily in Isn't the ninth. Isn't that like a... That's a 15-year-old, 12-year-old, I mean... Argument, but it hasn't really it's gotten ne- And it's never traction. gotten any traction. But here it is. This is. But they never- used to do it. Like... Oh, yes. Gossage would always come Lyle in. Lyle would go and yeah. pitch three or four inches, but that was a whole different style of pitching. No, no, no but pitching. this was in the fifth or sixth inning of the game. They're talking about bringing him in the seventh, where you know he's not going to close the game. Ooh. So as opposed to, you know, let's bring Gossage in for six outs. I'm from New York, so I trust me, I saw nine Henry outs. Gossage. Right. Yeah, yeah, nine they're, outs. They're, not, they're not bringing him in for nine outs. So they literally say, we're going to sacrifice him in the ninth inning to bring him in in a high-leverage situation in the seventh. It just, I just it never just heard little, it discussed I'm on little, the air. I'm a little surprised that's innovative, especially given what, you know, teams are doing with the relievers 
at the beginning of games. I mean, we've really jumped that far, and we're still debating this question? That's well, just and, and I mean, it's it's kind of a special context for that to come up, because it's also kind of this, like, one-game playoff, all hands-on, yeah, exactly. that kind of philosophy. All the more reason why it shouldn't be interesting in some sense, right? It should be like anything goes. At that well, I, I mean, announcers do have to fill a lot of time. No, but, this is, baseball, but this is something but. that is that is still doesn't really happen. And, and right. we've talked about why. I mean, bringing yeah. in your, your ninth inning guy in the fifth inning, you have to figure out what the sequencing is to get you there, and, and they're not ready. I mean, the ninth inning guy is not sitting there warming up in the fifth inning. Well, there and, is that. Yeah. And you can't just bring them in. They need their, their nine, 15 pitches. You, you sound like a real baseball like, guy, not an analyst. I do, and I, that's because of all those conversations with Rick Peterson. Exactly, he would exactly. explain that to us. Well, this, this is the beauty of it. Yeah. You spend some time talking to baseball people now, and it softened your opinion on this thing. Well, yeah, because the numbers say they're obvious, but it just doesn't actually happen. And for and for legitimate yeah. reasons. I mean, That's warming right. up is like a real thing. The psychology of when you're going to leave the bullpen and go pitch in mm-hmm. front of that audience to those players is like a real thing. Oh, yes. Especially yeah. when you've got a, a whole lifetime of doing it a certain way. Or, I don't know, well, that's the, that's the other human in, uh, component of it. The ninth inning guys just don't like to do it, and they won't do it. And that's a whole sea change of behavior that it's that's starting to happen. They're getting the ninth ninth inning guys to go eighth and seventh, usually to start the inning, not in the middle of the yeah, inning. Yeah, they don't. Well, like I mean, that. I, yeah, yeah. And, and that's that kind of cultural thing that can that yeah. can change over ch- time and probably over a generation. Yeah. But I think there's also these inherent kind of aspects of the game, like having to warm up and all this type of stuff that aren't cultural no, effects that can kind of right. get washed out over a generation. So we know that the. Wild card game tonight. We're in the middle of wild card games, which yeah. is another reason we wanted to bring Michael in this particular week because Michael is, you know, we're in the middle of football season. We're at the end of baseball season. Michael's one of these guys can go both directions very well. He's a hardcore baseball guy as well as being all into football. Baseball last night and tonight, it's the A's and the, I want to say Diamondbacks? No, right. no, no the, Rays. Rays. the Rays. The Rays. I, all, those expansion, American League. all those expansion teams fall like yeah. the same division. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the Rays are known for... Leading with their relievers. They're not right? doing that tonight, though. They're not. They're so not. Why, why would they not? Yeah, because you don't do it. You, you don't lead with the relievers when you have your best pitcher. I mean, that's the idea behind the opener. Okay. Is that, yeah, Charles Morton is uh, a three point oh five ERA this I, year. Yeah. Was the best pitcher on the team all year, and so you might end up having him. What happened with Scherzer last night, which is Scherzer pitched what five innings. I'm saying, not saying he pitched so fantastically, and then they went to Strasburg. Yeah. Right. Maybe Morton. Doesn't pitch more than three or four innings, but you know he but is, is their, their best, best pitcher. pitcher. So I wouldn't. Know. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw that if they advance to the ALDS. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw that opener in a couple of the games in there. Well, tell you know. me how they do it in the regular season. Are you talking they, that becomes like the fourth starter kind of thing? Yeah, is the opener is the idea behind yeah. the opener is that okay. it's your your bullpen crew leading off the bullpen is better than a fifth using starter. your fourth or fifth starter. Yeah. And that depends on, on how strong your your bullpen crew is. Now, what I've, and I've how tried strong to make your fourth, it right? Could be third, your third. I've tried it. to make a big okay. distinction between the opener and bullpenning. And they're different strategies. And a lot of teams are well, bullpenning, and see, not all of them are opening. Okay, so opener. people should listen to you, Adi, because yeah. we've been hearing this from you. I was hearing this whole thing from you, I don't know, three-plus years Five ago. Five years ago, Whenever you yes. seem like a crazy man yelling in the wilderness. That's right. That's right. Well, the, you yell enough stuff in the wilderness, <laughs> some of it's going to be right. right. I just wanted to ask a, a question. Well, well, look, Is, we want to hear this no, distinction between bullpenning uh, and Let me explain and it. I, actually, I tweeted it recently, because the Yankees have don't usually 
opener. They often bullpen. The Rays actually are bullpenning. So, I mean, opening. An opener is when you start with, um, it's all confusing. The basic idea is you have your third line starter, third or fourth starter or fifth, come in in the second inning after your setup man or one of your two or three second level retrie- uh, relievers take out the top of the lineup. Yeah. That's the real, and this also allows for lots of advantages. It keeps the, um, it keeps the the it, when you when you finally roll around for that that starter who's not really the starter he's now the second second guy in to the third time through the lineup it's the bottom of the lineup leading that through not the top of the lineup it really lines things up very well and so hold on this is a thing that people talk about a lot we learned it we learned it I think first from Rick Peterson and now everyone talks about it all the time that third time through is kind of fatal to a pitcher. it can be it, not, it, fatal is too strong a word yeah it seems to be a big deal. Do they get longer innings out of the start quote starters who come in in the second inning? Do they get more time from them because that third time through? It's the top of the order. It's the bottom of the order, not the order. Which is much. And this is a benefit. Um, I'm not sure they do. Remember, it's not the greatest pitcher who's doing it. But the idea is that you can get five five innings out of that second line, usually in the better part of the better part of the lineup, and that that's that closer guy who's not really a closer setup guy takes out on the top. But what distinction were you drawing between bullpenning and opening? Bullpenning is it just relievers the whole game. It's like two, 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 Absolutely, it's all about whether there is an actual kind of quote unquote five inning, well, four uh, five inning. Let me just comment. The game. The, there's a discussion that the Nationals are going to do that against the Dodgers in Game One because Scherzer pitched and, and Strasburg pitched. So the argument is they're going to bullpen it potentially in Game One with their starters, with, yeah. <laughs> with no, their no, best pitchers. No, 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 no. no. That they're oh, not they're with the no, no, oh, that they're, they're unclear right now. They might leave Scherzer and, and Strasburg to games three and four, mm-hmm. which would be their normal rest and rotation. And then and Corbin tra- pitches in game because Corbin exactly pitched. he yep. can't pitch game one. He yeah. pitched late in the year for some reason. They're just they're, that's the discussion they're having. So right. let's get it. Let's hear a little bit from Michael on baseball. But let me ask one question to to lead off. How how do pitcher how does pitcher physiology work? If you pitch him, if you have a if you have a starter that you want to run again, is it any pitching that is hard that, on his body? That was going to be my question. Can you, can you throw your guy? Look, he threw, he threw last night. He, th- he gave us seven innings last night. And now we're in a critical, get, call it game seven or whatever. Um, can we bring him in for one inning and it's still good that one inning? Or know that even that one inning is impaired? Hershiser did it famously against the Mets. Right. It's been done oh, it, by it, the top it, pitchers. Hershiser pitched a complete game and then came back two days later and closed Really? Yeah. That's right. Didn't Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling destroy the Yankees? With this yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't remember anybody but those two pitching in that <laughs> no, World Series. That's all they had. I mean, that's the, the great anomaly of the playoffs, and that's they why had Young Young Kim. Right. The way the way you played the whole season the is just out the window, and now you just you just repeat, you just yeah. ruin your starter. Well, your best. Michael, I'm curious, Michael, why is it that you remember the Hershiser Mets thing oh, so well? Oh. Don't even start. That was one. So we have a Mets. We have a Mets fan. Me, yes. Last time, you know, you try to you try to grow up. The the last time, (laughs) try. I actually completely lost control of my emotions watching a sporting event. Hold hold, hold, over under on this, guys. (laughs) And what is it for you? My over under on Michael. He's because he's telling the story. I'm going to say it's two and a half years ago, three years, three years ago. When were the Mets last in a significant game? Oh, well, oh, they were they in the, were they in the, the World, World Series. Series. So how I mean, long ago? Not that long ago. Yeah, 2015. 2015. 15. Okay. 2015. When was the last time you guys lost control of your emotions watching a sporting event? Um, uh, the the Atlanta Patriots Super Bowl. That's reasonable. With yeah, me, I was. It was 
uh, Federer Djokovic in the Wimbledon when Federer was up 8-7 serving 40-15 oh, yeah. and I just couldn't control myself that I thought Federer was going to do it and I, I was so disappointed when he didn't after that it was okay. an incredible well, match. Is, are you, are you hold talking hold about hold up hold or hold down hold control? Either way, we've had two okay. examples. One so up, one down. I'm going to go up which was when uh, the Yankees were playing Oakland in the one game wild card playoff last year mm. and in the first <laughs> inning Judge hits a homer <laughs> and it was just the most exciting okay, thing. I Michael, mean, that was is, in the in the stadium. You see, how, you see how much latitude you have. You're going to tell this. You say <laughs> you try to grow up. We're not growing. We're not growing up. But you guys are probably more composed. What I mean is that I actually like. Um, I, I think I punched at the attic. Door. <laughs> oh, I see. No, no, This was the 1988 uh, playoffs, the National League Championship Series, when Sosha hit the home run against Gooden in the ninth inning to tie that game. Yeah. Which is like, are you kidding me, Mike Sosha? Mm. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. he's not even really a threat to hit a homer, and Gooden was on fire that game. Wow. And, you know, and then the Mets ended up, instead of going up 3-1, the series, they ended up they ended up losing the series. Look, I can't in, forget, uh, I mean, Shane just brought it up, I can't forget 2001 like it was yesterday. And I'm going to tell you, you remember, that was the three-time defending champion Yankees yes, in the and World Series. Yes, that was 9-11 Yankees. And so the whole country was behind them for once. And you know, yes. people, yeah. I was no. behind the Yankees. No, 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 no. And I was, you know, <laughs> I, I, was. I, I was at a friend's house, and when they when that dribbler went through and they lost it, I stormed out of my friend's house. No, thank you. No, thanks for hosting me. No, I just stormed out of the chair and ran out. And I wouldn't enter that room okay. for like twenty we're, years. We're discovering that we have a few things to work on. But it yet, does show as, you as people. Yankees have won World Series in nineteen years since then. Yeah, one. Yeah. I know. So, Michael, talk to us about the broader playoff landscape. We, we know one of the wild card winners. We don't yet know the other ones. We don't have the full slate. But how do you think this thing's shaping up? We have two almost historic, not quite historic, but having two of them is, is two, having two of them historic. 107 wins by the Astros um, in the AL and 106 by the Dodgers. Yep, in the 106. NL. So, the, I mean, how, how do you think they shape up for actually meeting each other? What do you make of the playoffs? Well, obviously it's so random, so you never know. Like, to, to get the... The better team winning. I mean, wouldn't the series have to be? Didn't somebody figure this out once? That it's like a playoff games, series or, or twenty three or something like yeah. ridiculous. Hold on, to Unpack make that it more bit. than fifty percent that the better team wins. Statistically, no, no, more no, no, fifty no. percent. No. Hold on, fifty percent is a start. No, you mean you mean much higher than that, yeah. guys. This is really interesting. Unpack, unpack no, no, it. Oh. One, one no. of the kind of ground better team has fifty percent. Groundbreaking chance. papers in sports analytics way back when was this by Frederick Marstower, who was the founder of the Harvard Stats Department, and he wrote a paper basically about how many games would you have to play for a team to have, say, over the better team, if they were truly better, to have over 60% chance That to depends win. on how much better. So he said Yeah, so he had it? to set, like, a parameter of, like, you know, this, if the team is, you know, 55%, truly 55% better, okay. you need something like 19 games to actually, like, have an above 60% chance of that team winning. So all those parameters matter a lot. This yes, a yeah. lot. I mean, this I mean, is, obviously, <laughs> this is interesting. How in how yeah. how separated the teams truly are yeah. matters, and how okay. you know how how probable you want the actual outcome to be okay, yeah. matters. What, what, so but it, it has to for for any kind of reasonable you know sort of parameters. It's a lot longer okay. than five or seven games. Let's start with the one we know that is most obvious: Dodgers Nats. Yeah, this is the wild card winner versus the 106 game winner. 
What's in a, in it's a, probably 60, in a single 40. game? 60-40? Okay, 60, I would 40. guess it's 60-40. I, I would say it's less. I would say it's probably 55-45. Oh, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about for, this, for the oh, series. Yeah, so I'm in a single, I'm going to start with the game. All right, so at a game level, it's much lower. I would okay. say it's probably much lower. It also flips See, so depending so on who the starter is. Th- but that's, that's, that's sobering in and of itself, and mm-hmm. that, that makes yeah. it pretty stark. This is the best, clearly the best team in the NL. Playing the winner of the wild card. Now we understand. No, some the, the good, Nats are actually a very good team. I know. I was about to say we can. We understand sometimes really good teams come out of that, but still. I this think, is, but I think sixty forty is a good series for any series. series. Mm-hmm. That that's I think the maximal separation you get in any ser- in any baseball. Playoff What's actually series. interesting here is I'm just looking at the data. The Nats had the best second best run differential in the National League after the Dodgers. Oh, really? So when we talk wow. about wins losses, remember right. that's old school analytics. Yeah. If we just look at Pythagorean, you know, runs scored and runs against, the Nationals would be the second best team in the NL. So actually, yeah, the Dodgers and, and, and are I playing the second best. That's team. not the biggest separation I think six, uh, in, in in series to upcoming. We already know the series that where I can kind of guarantee what's. Well, you've happen. said the Yankees. Yankees the are going to beat the Twins. Because they the, always do. <laughs> well, you're, you're they a always do. Prior. They're a strong prior. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I know twins that's kind of a hot power. take, but that's I mean, dangerous. Prove me wrong, twins. So the please, twins, the please, twins, the twins prove have this really interesting feature. They're the second team ever to have six players with 25 plus home runs. Now, they had eight with 20. The Dodgers did it back in well, 1979. They set the all time record, right? record for the, home runs. The Yankees, I think, have the record. I think they had 13 guys with 10 or more. 13. 13. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we know that the base rate's just going up, so everybody's hitting more, but still, that's astounding. I like the fact that the Yankees have to kind of be scared of so many twins hitting home runs as they sit through this thing. Of course, everyone's scared of the Yankees lineup. Tell me more about the the, the American League. The Astros have done a number of really interesting things. Of course, they have the 107 wins, but they, you know, they do some smart things. Like, they're the first team to, and since whatever, since stats were held on this, to not issue an intentional walk, zero, zero intentional walks for the entire season. Most more more interesting, they're the first team ever to lead major league both in pitching strikeouts and, and fewest fewest, fewest, fewest strikeouts. strikeouts. That's a great so stat. That one I didn't fully understand because is that chance or the Astros doing something? You know, they're so far advanced in developing their pitchers and developing their hitters. Are they doing something? Because imp- it seems like, you know, Michael wrote this great article this summer about, hey, when home runs go up, strikeouts go up. These just things go together. But here's yeah, here the Astros it's, it's kind stable. of— Well, so first give us that observation, and then tell us about what the Astros might be doing, if anything, to reduce the, the seeming inevitability of a strikeout. Well, with the homers, um, since the live ball era began, it's 6.5 strikeouts per homer. And it's uh, on on average, and it's pretty stable. It varies very minimally uh, year to year. And this year it was six point three two strikeouts per homer. So the 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 uh, theory I posited in the five thirty eight article was that uh, what we're seeing really is since there's no more shame to the strikeout, hitters are selling out more. And when you sell out more, you just hit more home runs. I mean that was the Babe Ruth famously said that. Um, uh, you know that, that a strikeout is, is leading me closer to the next yeah, home run. Yeah, gets me gets me closer to the next home run. That's right. So that hasn't really changed. So let me jump in on that because actually my students and I are working exactly on this uh, question. So what Babe Ruth did was pioneer the strikeout, but Ted Williams pioneered the walk. Mm. 
Yes. And the two of them together are what's creating this monstrosity of home and runs. And he also, Williams also pioneered hit trajectory. Well, yes. Well, that's the, with the, with the, with the uh, bat elevation and the elevation of the ball. But what happened with, with Williams was he decided, he taught people to, to recognize that there's no shame in walking. You, you ask yourself, shame in walking? Well, to DiMaggio, walking was considered, you know, not doing it for the fans. That was a bad idea. And, and but Williams did it out of kind of a pig-headed, I'm not swinging at a pitch that I can't do anything with, you know. Right. You know, I mean, quite honestly, he F the fans. That was that was that was Williams. And uh, he walked a ton, and that's how you hit home runs. You can't you can't try to hit a home run in a pitch that you can't do anything with. Okay. And that also leads to a lot of strikeouts. But I'm gonna ask you a question. This is the And Mantle that, actually brought both of those things together. Together. But here's an so what you, if you want to look at the the change in home runs season over season, which predicts better? Change in strikeouts or change in in walks? Oh, that's terrific. Question. I would say it's strikeouts. Well, certainly this is the the article, and he wouldn't be raising it with such conviction and such <laughs> well, spark. I'll give you yeah, a yeah, sparkle I'm going yeah, to pick walks just based on human psychology. <laughs> I, 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 here. Yeah, right. I'll give you a hint. They both matter. I mean, they both, you know, strikeouts go up. Uh, the, the delta in strikeouts increases in correlates with delta increase in home runs. And delta in walks does too. But walks is bigger. Really? Substan- actually, su- fairly substantially, substantially. bigger. Substantially. Yeah. Really? In fact, I mean, this, in, I, this year, walks went up a lot. Strikeouts... Also went up, but not a ton. Do you think it's the uh, one is the dog and the other one is the tail, though? Is it possible yes. that walks are going up because <laughs> homers are going up? So None of us knows causality, yeah. right? So, but, but, Where but, with strikeouts going up, I think we could definitely, I mean, just yeah. intuitively say that players are selling out, so they're going to probably hit more home runs. So let's bring it back to the Astros, who are famously you know, working on changing people's games with all these micro data. Do you, do you think they're doing something intentionally to help keep the strikeouts down, even as the team is hitting a lot of home runs? I think they are. Uh, I think what they're doing is, is trying to do recognize, do pitch recognition, and then this keeps their players from swinging at basically pitches up in the zone, well, which are terrifying. Which is what happened to the Brewers last That's right. night. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, is, well, to the Nationals yeah. initially mm-hmm. in the game, they were, they were swinging at those high strikes. Is there anything in baseball that would say, um, let's imagine you have a pitching staff, which we've already mentioned, that's very effective in striking people out. Couldn't they use that pitching stuff to help train their batters to strike out less? I'm just asking a question. Is it possible that it's not that surprising that these two things are related? Like teach, I mean, teaching their hitters how to specifically recognize kind of dece- the deception of their pitchers. Well, use your there, there excellent is a certain pitchers. amount of deception involved. I know, but use oh. your excellent pitchers to help train your batters. I have read, and I think the it's Astros might, might have pioneered this, and I think other teams are doing this, too. To keep those players. It's good They're idea. replacing batting average pitchers who usually just th- soft toss 65 right down the that middle. That was my question. They're replacing them with actual... You don't mean batting. You mean batting, no, batting, batting practice, practice. Batting practice, practice pitchers yes. with actual... You know, hard stuff. Okay, hold that on. That was my this, question. We, well, we, and, I, and they dial up those machines now in the batting cages to like 110 miles an hour. So it's basically like how you used to put the donut on the bat. Right. So when you come out of that batting cage and you've tried to hit 110 mile an hour fastball, oh the God. guy who throws 98 miles an hour doesn't seem so bad. Okay, so hold on. This is, it sounds like the kind of thing that we might talk about, but you're saying teams are actually doing it. I the don't leading think every, teams I don't, are doing I, it. I don't think every team That's is doing right. this. That's right. So, you know, this is this is like baseball for years. T- players, like, knock around the field before the game. They take these, like, lazy batting practice. You're saying we can go to the park early and watch some guys take batting practice off of No, those are, those are 
in the stadium. They're inside. In the, in, uh, underneath yeah, the stadium is that. where all the cages are. Right. But I do think that, I mean, this is something for us to pursue and maybe bring someone from the teams if they'll talk. Um, they usually don't. The, the people with the teams don't really explain what they're doing. But I do believe they're actually bringing in batting practice pitchers who are throwing junk. I mean, curves. I mean, they j- never used to do that. Throw sliders yeah, and yeah, curves. The, the old lore was it throws off the timing of the yep. hitter. Mm-hmm. Right. I wonder how many teams are doing that. And I, is, is that the lore that's keeping it? Because, I mean, something, I mean, I can understand not every team, equal, you know, like easily or quickly adopting like analytics to do pitch recognition because that's hard and you have to find somebody that can do that for you. Dunkling up the batting machine, every team could do if that if that's kind of been demonstrated to work, yeah. every team could do that tomorrow. Right. So is, is there still kind of is the opposition I, I just this to, traditional lore that like it's yeah, somehow I, bet, I mean this is something for us to pursue. Get the answer well, to. Well, you know, it's not unreasonable to wonder if it screws you up because take it further. You know, what what at what speed is it more disadvantageous than advantageous? And and there's and we don't know that yet empirically, surely. Yeah. But that that'd be a great question. Like. You, is it is the optimal thing 105 or 110? I mean, 100, 120 is probably too fast. It, it's right? very complicated because off-speed pitches are devastating. I mean, if you go into a batting right. cages, I like to do that. You know, right. and I go into the the hardball cages and 80 miles an hour is the most I can possibly handle. Have fun. Then I'll just drop it down to 60. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And no, your timing is terrible. You strike out yeah. every time, yeah. so you can adjust. Also, right. there's another right. issue. Would you like your batters to hit 150 in batting practice? And how is that going to translate to their psychology in the game? We this, just don't know. Yeah, this is surely part of the reason they've done it the way they did for so long. All right, while we still have the whole crew here, let's talk a little bit about football. Um, I'm, I'm, and we're going to lose Adi. He's going to be teach here in a little bit. But what Was is, there another game this week? Besides well, the I, I do actually <laughs> have, I have a great uh, stat about the, the greatest game this week. I have a great stat about the A's and the, and the Rays. Um, their their um, batting average on, on balls in play allowed is always like historically low. So um, I Good pulled feeling? it. They're third. The the A's were third this year. The the Rays were eighth. And um, if you go back three years and put all the teams together, the A's are first, fourth, and thirty eighth. The Rays are fifth, thirteenth, and twenty fifth out of the, the ninety teams. And there's something about the Oakland Coliseum where the game is being played today. This is this is um, one of the weirdest stats that I've ever come across. So the the Coliseum suppresses batting average on ball and play for some reason that nobody's been able to well, explain. Big foul, foul territory. But I think that those are out of play, aren't they? I'm not sure if there's I don't an know out. If, those... I'm, if they can be fielded, they get counted as outs. I mean, so it's, right. I think they're in the numerator. Okay. So they must be. I think that could that, be. That, that, would, be, giant that would be interesting. It certainly does have giant, gigantic foul yeah. territory. But it's not but, really a baseball stadium, as it turns out. So the last three years, batting average on balls in play for both teams playing at the Coliseum is 283, which is extremely low. You know, it's about 296 to 300 in two, like every year. And so then I did 1990 to uh, to this year, and you know what the batting average on balls in play is at the Coliseum? 283. Huh. So I mean, it's kind of crazy how this park is so conducive to pitching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, even more that, than uh, but, the but, one in San Diego, I thought the San Diego one was famous. That was another one. Too. And you know, there are very few foul pop outs. By the way, like if you add them all pop, up, pops. it's not going to explain because it, it has to be a pop. 
to to be it has to be a pop-up to I for it to be announced. get there i see that's what you're well, there's very few ones overall in baseball because most of the stadiums do not have that kind of foul territory. Right, but even in Oakland, there aren't oh. enough to explain this effect completely. Oh, so okay. maybe it's the batter's eye. I don't know. Or the who when, knows what it is. It's one of the great analytics mysteries if you, any of you Everybody's are just interested in about tackling playing something. In that stadium so or? these two teams are both very analytics-savvy teams, right? Extremely. Obviously, obviously, the A's are famous for that, but but the Rays have kind of been leading the league in investment, and they do lots of smart things in the bullpen. Defensive so positioning. It's hard not to pull for both, which is not very helpful. Okay, Eric, you were at this game. So your Buccaneers go out and score 55 points? Good Lord. Well, I got to just say. Why the, were you in L.A. at You must game, love, as a, as, as a statistician, you must love high-variance Jameis Winston, man. That guy is a, <laughs> well, let you me, never know what you're going to well, get. Well, let me just comment. First, a few things. Um, I have a son that lives in Los Angeles. So I don't just, I mean, I'd like to travel to see the Bucks, but I don't just randomly go to cities. So that's, <laughs> I was in Los Angeles visiting my son. I just happened oh, no, no, to go no. on a weekend you, that horse, the, the Buccaneers. shit. You chose that weekend because it's you actually, chose to visit your son no, that weekend because true. the Bucks were it's there. It's not true. I was asked to give a talk at USC. Um, and you I said, I think did, I can no, come I this particular no, no, week. No, it's not the actual way it happened. Although, what you're saying is entirely plausible and most of the time true. It's actually, in this case, not okay. what happened. Just okay. a happy but, coincidence. But let me just say, the Buccaneers' offense only put 48 on the Rams. The, the defense did score seven uh, points, yeah. so let's not give them too much credit. I mean, right. Jameis, only, there were only six touchdowns and two field goals for the Bucks. No, I mean, look, Jameis Winston, though, almost blew the game. The Buccaneers were up by 12 in the fourth quarter with five minutes left. I think it was eight, but yeah. It was eight minutes left? Yeah. Okay, maybe it was eight minutes left. Even worse. And he throws a pick six where you knew the ball, and then the ball left his hand. I'm like, all right, well, it's a five-point game now. <laughs> and I mean, I, I didn't even have to wait for the, so again, he had a great game. Yeah. Great game. Four touchdowns, mm -hmm. one pick, was controlling. Every ball he threw looked great until... He tried to make a great play at a time where he didn't need yeah. to make he a great is, play. He is an incredibly entertaining player that I'm very happy is not quarterbacking <laughs> Your my team. It's like I used to watch Rex Grossman. You guys remember yeah, that guy course, who led the Bears. the Bears to the Super Bowl? He was a fun guy to watch, man. He would sling it every but time he got a chance, but it, I would not want the him The two things, team. and I, and Shane is my witness because we've been here together for the last couple of weeks on Wharton Moneyball. I told you I was not a fan of Jared Goff. I'm not just saying this after the game. Yep. And I continue to say he missed so many open receivers. He's, he's just His arm strength does not look great. He had at least seven or eight balls tipped at the line of scrimmage. I understand he threw. For, this is one of the, This is why we have advanced analytics today. The guy had 517 yards passing. 517 yards but passing. He threw and his QBR, it like 84 times. I know, and his or QBR something. was like 35. And his YPA was only, I think, 7.6. Yeah, Correct. He had a terrible game. No, absolutely and, 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 terrible. And I think we're sort of seeing. I, I mean, may, maybe teams are kind of following the formula that sort of exposed them in the Super Bowl last year. That if you take the running game away from them, exactly, and you force him to kind of pass it, and right. also force him to make the decisions on the field, he's just he he's not accomplished the enough Bucks, or experienced enough to do that. The Bucks had one strategy in the game it was actually quite simple, which was conducive to both stopping the run and getting pressure. Every, there was no outside pass rush essentially. That was not the Bucks' strategy. Everything was pushed up the middle. Matter of fact, when they loaded the line and pushed, it was always directly in the center of the line. Get Jared Goff off his spot. Make him go right, go left. Stop the run. Jam the middle. That's how they won the game. Yeah. And I think you're going to see every team do that against Go him. Goff, uh, Goff, his last 12 games, has 14 picks and 13 touchdown passes. 
and I think his YPA is like 6.6. So that's not good. It's, no, it's just right. amazing okay. given that Including he— Including the postseason, yeah. Given what he did—I mean, given what the team did last year and given the reverence that people had for that offense last year. Let me give you one observation before we roll off of here relevant to this. I, You know, Eric was pushing me because Massey Peabody didn't, didn't move the Bucks up at all, and they didn't move the Rams down much, much. And so I, I've had some conversations with Rufus about this, and we can talk about it more in, in the latter half of the show. But it did lead us to wonder, because you know we have these, we have this bottom-up model now, so we have a player-level model, and we're still, you know, there's a long way to go, but it's a start to. It helps you counterbalance when a quarterback performs in a way no quarterback's ever done before. So we have these kind of ways of thinking about first-year quarterbacks that suppresses them because historically they've not been very good. So when Mahomes, even as a second-year, first-year starter, is just knocking the top off of it, our model can't catch up with it because it's just so mm. historically unprecedented. If you have a bottom-up model based on things, you know, what, you know, you know, highly engineered versions of scout grades, you can kind of counterbalance it. So, but also as a result, you can look at player rankings. So Rufus shot me the current models quarterback rankings across the league. So we can just do a quick little quiz here. What number do you think Goff is in that model? Now, still, there's still some priors in there. There's something I we've got kind of all of his history in some sense in this. But our best take numerically on where Goff ranks 20. among the among the. I'd put him at like six, fifteen, sixteen, or something like that. Okay. That's where I would have guessed, given the incorporation of priors. Okay, yeah. so Goff is at fourteen right uh, now. If you're going to run down the top five, what's the, what's the sequence? Mahomes top five? might be. If Mahomes, Mahomes not a top, you really need one. to fix something right now. Well, you'd be happy with why he's not top, Shane. We have Brady one. What? So Wait, this is the Brady. Lifetime. I just want to be clear. I, I just yeah, want to that's look at the a stat line. man. So I watched a lot of that Buffalo game before I went yeah. to the okay. game. He looked 142. Yeah, 18 <laughs> for 39 for 150 yards, zero touchdowns, one pick. Okay. Against a very good defense. No, no, no. I think no we but top and, five defense. But you would agree right. now. You would agree now. I'll, I'll go to what Michael's yeah. talking about. When Brady plays a great defense now, you would be happy if he had an average plus game. In other words, you're yeah. not expecting Brady right. to have a great game anymore against a great defense. Is, would you agree with that? Uh, he could, I think he's still right. got it in the rest do, of the Yes, I would five. be happy. Would that's be happy. reasonable. But, yeah, but that's guys, true. you guys, come on, your quants, your modelers, yeah. you know, you don't expect your one model. game doesn't you got a shift. 14 yeah, year guy. Right, you're not going right. to move him I much was, on one game. Top five goes Brady, Mahomes, Wilson, Rogers, Rivers. Next five Ryan, Mayfield, Wentz, Prescott, Carr. Interesting. <laughs> Why Rodgers, though? Rodgers' yeah. game has been declining for years. His YPA has been, you know, hey, there's this, like two Rodgers. There's the Rodgers through 2014 and since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is fundamentally scout-based, and so scouts can be biased. Right. That's fundamentally scout-based. I take Jameis over all of them. <laughs> yeah, I bet you would. <laughs> all right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Some combination of the hosts are here. With all the hosts are here at the moment. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We also have guest co-host Michael Salfino, sports writer for Longtime sports writer for the Wall Street Journal, now 538, both still. And, and, the, and the Athletic for and Fantasy. I don't. I didn't know that. I love the Athletic. It's a yeah. great platform. My gosh, that's a good platform. But for Fantasy. Just yeah. for Fantasy. He's got, he's got yeah. the Fantasy thing going on also. And you guys, You guys can jump in here at one eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866 You can hit us up on email, businessradio 
at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter. Great way to reach us is on Twitter at WMoneyBall for that. In our next segment, we got Maria Konnikova coming back on the show. We talked to her at the MIT conference earlier this year. Could not be happier to have you. Maria, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. We're doing great. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm coming in from New York, which you will probably be able to tell at some point during the conversation because I'm assuming we'll hear some sirens at some <laughs> yeah. point. Well, we're accustomed to that. Not a big deal. And, you know, here in West Philly, we occasionally have some sirens as well. Maria is a New York Times bestselling author. She's a journalist and provocatively, she's a professional poker player now for Poker Stars Team Pro. She has two bestsellers, The Confidence Game and before that, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She has a new book coming out this year, The Biggest Bluff, about her foray into poker. And it's one of the reasons we're talking to Maria. What's What we're going to get to in that book, which is we learned while we were talking to her in, in, at MIT, is that Maria, you said this book was an excuse to write about skill versus chance. Is that is that right? Is that still how you're feeling about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So before I started on this project, I actually didn't really know anything about poker, didn't care about poker. So it's not like the poker was an excuse to get into something else. Rather, I wanted to write about chance and mm -hmm. the role that luck plays in our lives mm -hmm. and how we can learn to tell the difference between what we're controlling and what we're not controlling because you know the human mind is so so bad at doing that we love taking credit for things when they're going well and say oh yeah you know i'm so good i'm doing so well mm -hmm. and then when things don't go well we say oh you know all these excuses this happened and that happened mm -hmm. but we're really bad at actually objectively saying okay i'm my skill was responsible for this element, and then I just got really lucky, or I got really unlucky in this in this particular instance. And I really wanted to dive into that. So, Maria, that, that's it's so central to what we do here. I mean, this is a sports analytics show, and and in some ways, the first thing sports analytics tries to do is to pull signal out of noise, out of noisy, you know, performance statistics and observations that we make. It's the number one job, really, of sports analytics is to is to parse skill from luck. And so we're super sympathetic to the enterprise. Where does that motivation come from? Why were you fired up about that particular issue? You're saying it's not just about, you know, sports or gambling. It's about life, which I couldn't agree more. Yeah. But where does that come from for you? Well, it comes from two, uh, two separate places. Um, first, it comes from what I actually studied. Um, so I have a PhD in psychology that I've never used. Um, I was never going into academia. I was always being a full-time writer, um, didn't realize about the poker player part, but but it was never it was never for academia. It was more to understand the human mind. But the thing that I studied was self-control, and I actually studied a very specific part of self-control, which is the um, illusion of control. Mm -hmm. So basically, when we feel like we're in control, but we're actually not. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really interesting phenomenon that I discovered when I was in grad school that. People who are really, really good normally, um, oftentimes when you put them in an environment that's stochastic where there is a lot of noise, um, they don't learn well. They get overconfident. They say, oh, you know, I'm very smart. I know what I'm doing normally, so I'm just going to keep on doing mm -hmm. what I've always done. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of, I think that had planted the seed in my mind that very smart people are very capable of making this mistake of mistaking control for mm -hmm. um, for actual for chance. Um, but then there were a lot of things that happened in my life personally, um, right around the time that the confidence game um, came out. And 
I'll get into this in, in the book, but, you know, there were some deaths in the family, people losing jobs, people getting sick, just a lot of stuff happened all at once. Mm-hmm. And I think that humans really start thinking about the role of chance when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. When, right. when everything's right. going wonderfully, you don't really stop to, to think, oh, you know, I'm really lucky. Everything is great. You know, I'm healthy. Everything is going really well. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when things start going poorly, that's when you actually that's when you actually wake up to the role of chance. Right, right. Um, and so and so in, in in that particular instance, I just thought, you know, this is really interesting. I want to write about this. I want to explore this more deeply. But it's such a deep question. It's such a philosophical question. It's so easy to just get lost in the weeds right away and start, you know, going down a religious rabbit hole or a philosophy rabbit hole. So I needed something to anchor it down. And that's how I got to poker. No, it's, re- it's an amazing it's an, it's an amazing and unexpected story for writing a book about poker. So, Maria, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, I have a question to you about this and about poker. So I'm a poker player, not at the professional level, but obviously I, I play a bit. Um, why did you choose poker as it's a game of incomplete information? Like, you don't observe the other people's cards yeah. most of the time. And so why choose this as a venue to learn about both chance and, if you'd like, apply your psycho- psychology degree to the human psyche? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's the exact reason why I chose it. So I was looking at a lot of different things, and I needed something where you could actually parse apart the role of skill and chance and, and have a good analogy to life. And obviously, if you pick a game like chess, it's a game of complete information. So everything is out there. There's always a right decision. And you could theoretically always calculate exactly what you want to do. Well, if you want an analogy for life, that's a really, really bad analogy because life is a game of incomplete information. I don't know your motivations. I don't know what proverbial cards you hold. You know, I don't know a lot of things and you don't know what I know. And so we go back and forth in this kind of cycle of, you know, what do you know? What do I know? And it's endlessly regressive. And so poker is actually a beautiful analogy for this because it captures that uncertainty. It captures that element of never quite knowing and having to act anyway. So you act with the most confidence you can given the information you have at the moment, knowing that it's going to be incomplete. And I think that that's what makes human decision-making so difficult because we want certainty and we want to know that we're making the quote-unquote right decision. And it's very difficult to do that with incomplete information because you'll never know for sure because, you know, the, the world is full of noise. And poker is a really great tool for disambiguating that and for figuring out, you know, okay, well, I have enough information to make this decision with 70% certainty, and that's good enough. Right, right. and, and it's, that's that's the other side of poker as perfect for what you're doing because it's incomplete, but it's finite, and we, we can understand these probabilities. It's just probabilistic, but we understand them quite uh, well, and so it gives you this great place to study these things. Just probabilistic. So, Maria, this is Adi Weiner. I just wanted to interject that I have read your, your book, The Confidence Game. I really, really enjoyed it. Big fan of your work. Look forward to your next book, but I'm going to ask you about you. poker. Um, I've written actually extensively on the, the balance between skill and chance in games in general and poker in specific, also mm-hmm. fantasy sports. Um, and I wanted to ask you to weigh in. I have to run and teach, so it's my last chance. Um, to weigh in on the the, <laughs> the, uh, the big debate 
in, in poker between what makes a successful poker player is it knowing the odds, knowing the probabilities, playing the right strategies, pot odds, yeah. pot odds and, 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 and being able to calculate and understand what information means and being a really good almost mathematician about, about poker or reading players and under and getting all that information yeah. from I mean, where do you fall in on the on the on that debate? Or, I mean, because some poker professional pokers plays, you know what? Just it's all math, people. And others say, yeah. no, no, it's reading players, knowing when someone's <laughs> bluffing. So where do you fall? So, um, so first of all, let me just caveat this by saying that I'm a live poker player. So live and online are are a little hugely bit different. different. Yeah. Um, so, so for live games, I actually the way that I look at that question is the same as I look at it when, as a psychologist, I get asked about nature versus nurture, which is that you can't pull them apart. They're both incredibly important and they both work together so the best players in the world are going to be able to you know use the solvers and tell you how they're supposed to act in a certain spot but as with any algorithm as with any mathematical thinking your output is only as good as your input and what they can also do is read players and change their inputs accordingly figure out oh you know based on my read of this player his range or the hands that he's playing is actually going to be very different from what I would expect from someone who's on my level, who's playing absolutely game theory optimally. So my game theory optimal equilibrium actually has to change as a result, and that comes from reads. So if you look at some of the players who are just crushing right now, um, so someone like Steven Chidwick, for instance, you if you look him up right now, he's one of the best tournament players in the world, and you see that he has just this almost perfect knowledge of solutions in any given spot, and yet he deviates from them. And he makes these incredible creative plays based on reads of opponents. And I think you need both. I think people who are too mathematic, who are too robotic, are going to lose out and they're not going to do as well. And people who just are completely field players are also going to be destroyed in certain situations. Mm -hmm. And I think the best players understand that and know how to combine the two in a creative fashion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Maria Konnikova. She's a New York Times bestselling author, journalist, and professional poker player for She Plays for Poker Stars Team Pro. She has a new book coming out. The release date's 2020, I believe. The biggest bluff is coming out about her experience with poker and that as an exploration of this luck versus chance issue in life. Maria, you, you've been successful, which is wonderful, great fun, and, and has opened up new opportunities and is going to make the book even more interesting. To what do you attribute your success as a poker player? <laughs> to, uh, to a lot of luck and some skill. I think, that, I think that there are a lot of elements playing into this. Um, first, there's obviously the luck element. I mean, I had no idea whether or not I was going to be good. Um, and so it just so happened that I had a lot of skills that um, I had already developed in other areas of my life that helped me at the poker table. And so, I also got incredibly lucky that one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel, agreed to coach me. Right, and right, right. he got a lot of other great players to also agree to coach me. So, so just Kind of, I had a very good starting point with just access to the best resources in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually, for you know, I left the New Yorker to play poker and focused on it 100% before I had won a single cent. I knew that I would have to you know, completely immerse myself in mm-hmm. this. And so I studied seven days a week, you know, sometimes 10, 11 hours a day, and just worked really, really hard. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's part of it as well. I don't think there's a shortcut in the sense that, you know, you can pick up a few things and then go crush. Mm-hmm. I do think that you have to put in a lot of effort and really think through it. And I 
I think one of the skills that I brought to the game is that I know how to study well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've studied a lot of other things in the past. And so I know how to pick up new languages and new skills. And I think that that really helped me optimize my learning. And then, of course, the cards in some crucial situations broke my way. I think uh-huh. any professional poker player, especially tournament players, will tell you that you have to be skilled and you have to play well. But to win a tournament, you have to run well. You have to get lucky. There are some incredible players who have never won a major title in their life who are much better than I am. Right. And I somehow managed to win one within a year of starting <laughs> to play poker. Right. So, so I think that that was, you know, yes, sure, I had picked up a lot and I had picked up a certain number of skills, but I also got incredibly lucky and I can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maria, when we talked earlier, you talked about your book being not just a story about an investigation into luck and chance, but also like learning how to live with luck and chance, learning how to navigate yeah. a world that's a mix of luck, luck and chance. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that? So wandering into poker from scratch, this world that is this mix of luck and chance, what did what did you learn about how to navigate that? What did you learn about life that translates from your experience with poker? <laughs> well, first of all, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and I think that that's something that I knew going in that the human mind just is really uncomfortable with uncertainty and with not knowing and with ambiguous information and ambiguous circumstances. And so I knew that going in, but poker really forces you to, you know, either deal with it or leave the game. I don't Mm. think you can play poker if you are looking for certainty, if you're looking for a closure at any given situation. Mm. And I think a lot of players who burn out, who end up not doing well, or who end up just not enjoying the game are people who want to know that every time they have pocket aces, which is the best hand you can be dealt pre-flop, they're going to win. And they just lose it completely (laughs) when their aces get cracked, as they're supposed to. But you start learning, oh, you know, this is supposed to happen 25% of the time. And look, it happened. Um, Sometimes I'm going to, you know, I got my money in as a 98% favorite. And that 2% happened, and I'm out of the tournament. And you start experiencing that. And when you experience it over and over and over, it gets your mind used to disambiguating the decision process from the outcome. And it gets you to realize that, you know, sometimes you have a near-perfect situation, 98%, you know, when do we ever have that certainty? And you still end up in that 2%. So Maria, and you realize that, you know, statistics don't care. Right. But Maria, it, this definitely echoes my experience with professional sports gamblers. I, you know, the, 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 you know, this from your psychological training, the, 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 the best calibrated forecasters that we know of for a long time have been weathermen because they get this feedback on a regular basis and so they turn out to be be very good with their judgments i would posit that the best i know are professional gamblers because they put real money on the line pay a lot of attention and get feedback on the regular and they get very good at exact and riding up they ride the ups and downs better than other people do and i suspect poker players are the same way my question for you is you want this book to be about life and you're a psychologist and you understand human psychology what chances do people have to get better at this thing you're talking about getting better at having the odds in your favor at not working out and not having it wreck your life how can we get how can the lay person do you have advice as far as kind of how we can go without putting in 70 hours a week into (laughs) learning poker how we could actually become better with dealing with uncertainty 
Well, I mean, the glib answer is to buy the book when it comes out, but that's actually, that's the point of the book, is to help people learn to deal with that mm-hmm. and to kind of, and to talk through kind of the, the coping strategies, the mental strategies that will allow you to kind of look past what's happening in the moment and learn to kind of focus on the things that you can control, your decision process, your reaction to things. Basically, how do you maximize your upswings, which you will have, and how do you minimize your downswings, which mm-hmm. you will inevitably have? Mm-hmm. Because I think that I think that also what makes kind of the absolute best poker players, at some point, you know, the best players in the world all have just this beautiful handle on all things mathematical, right? They understand all of these situations. They've run all of these simulations. They know what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But the ones who end up really standing out, are, one of the things that sets them apart is their mental game, is their ability to react to these different things, their ability to control themselves emotionally, their ability to control their reactions, their thinking process, how they analyze things after the fact. So, Maria, let me ask you... Let me ask you more. And I think of a, that that's crucial. This is Eric Bradley. And there's a brief question about learning. Do you ever play hands knowing that you may be playing an expected value negative hand, but the purpose is learning? Yes, absolutely. But then I would I would say that you can look at expected value differently. If you're looking mm. at expected value as over this one specific hand, sure, sometimes I will do a negative expected value play because I want information, because information is valuable. And to me, the expected value of that information over the course of this game is actually higher than what I'm losing. And to be clear, the information you guys are talking about is information on somebody else's playing style or their tails. Yeah, that's so interesting. Exactly. So for instance, if I really want to know, okay, what did you, you know, what did you play this way? You know, I'm very curious. I want to know because I'll be playing with you all day. Um, And, you know, this bet on the river is, very small um Uh, and i realized that i'm actually losing and that there's no way my hand can win and that the only way i can win is by blessing you and by raising you but i don't want to do that i'm actually going to call even though i know it's a losing play because i want to see what you have i actually want you to show me your cards and the value of seeing that is worth it to me so sometimes you'll do something like that um, because you know that this is not a one-shot interaction. Mm-hmm. If you look at it in, in game theory terms, this is a re- repeat interaction. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. going to be playing in this situation for a long time. And so the expected value starts being calculated not just in one hand, but over the course of mm-hmm. a day. Mm-hmm. It, could, it takes us back to, to sports more generally, actually, because we're sure that you know play callers do this. Offensive, defensive play callers in the NFL and college football do this for sure. Listen, Maria, we have to let you, sadly, we have to let you go, but we really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us this morning. We wish you the best with the book. Every time we talk about it, I get more excited about it. So I really hope it goes well for you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Maria Konnikova, New York Times bestselling author, uh, former New Yorker writer. She's a great follow on Twitter, by the way, at M. Konnikova, at M. Konnikova. If you are on Twitter, she's a good one to stay in touch with. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. You guys can join us. 
1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Feel free to give us a shout, 1-844-WHARTON, or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. We have lost Audie Weiner to the classroom. He is uh, doing responsible teaching things right now. Eric Bradlow is still here. Shane Jensen is still here. This is Cade Massey. And we have a very fond friend of ours, guest co-hosting in studio, Michael Salfino, is here. Guys, we're just off the phone with Maria Konnikova. How fabulous is Maria Konnikova? Good Lord. It was amazing. What was amazing to you about it, Shane? Well, I mean, I I think it's – I don't – we have guests on a lot that talk about, you know, sort of like uncertainty, but I think she really kind of hit a, a chord of what I sort of think about, and especially the part where it transcends sports to kind of talk about life in general. And, and you know, I think it comes up a lot in sports where we make narratives after the fact for things that were mostly kind of luck-based processes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess it more hit a chord on the sort of like kind of like beyond sports, the kind of life lessons that you can kind of get from recognizing how much luck plays a role. Mm-hmm. I just loved her answer to my question about negative expected value, which is she understands it's not a one-shot game. And that, you know, this is what we've talked about this term a couple of times recently on Morton Moneyball, the Bellman equation, which is expected value plus the value of information. That's how you make optimal decisions. And so what she's saying is in a repeated play game, I'm sitting with Michael Salfino the entire day, I can gain money by learning something about you. And so to me, it was a a mathematical economist, not a PhD psychologist, which she is, would answer it the exact same way. I was extraordinarily impressed by Mm -hmm. the answer. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun. Well, speaking of chances to learn and repeated games, we do have some baseball going on. And to talk a little bit about baseball, we have Harry Pavlidis joining us. Harry is the Director of Research and Development at Baseball Prospectus. He's also the founder of Pitch Info, and he's the co-host of the Stolen Signs podcast, Harry, good morning to you, and welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, good morning. It's good to be back. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, from home in Chicago. All right. We understand you live not just in Chicago, but on the north side there near Wrigley Field. From New Field. Jersey, though. Is that right? So, yeah, uh, that's a theme Ridley. for the show. I'm originally from Jersey. Um, yeah, but I do live, I used to live right just a few blocks from Wrigley Field. I'm a couple miles away now. Uh, all right. All right. Well, Still we'll, the neighborhood nine. Yeah. yeah. You... Um, you grew up in North Jersey. Where, where are your Where are your baseball allegiances? Uh, well, I am a Cubs fan. I'm a recovered Mets fan. Uh, <laughs> so, like the '86 World Series was a great thing. Um, but for those of you who remember the late '80s Mets, remember they weren't so great and kind of a heartbreaker. So that was oh geez, I was you know going into college at that time. Yeah, and uh, that's a time of change. And then I moved to Chicago, uh, just a few blocks from Wrigley Field. And despite the fact that the Cubs were a really bad team in the '90s. Uh, it was hard to resist the allure of Wrigley Field yeah, right. right down the street. And uh, and then Sammy Sosa comes along, and they weren't so bad for a while. It was so Yeah, 98 was fun, no matter how much people want to deny that. 1998 <laughs> it was a ball. Are you really kidding? fun year of baseball. Turns out drugs are entertaining sometimes. It turns out... <laughs> There's a lot of industries based on that, unfortunately, so <laughs> ours doesn't have to be better now. So, Harry, before we drop, drop into your work, while we're on the Cubs, what do you make of their not making the playoffs this year, of letting Madden go, of there being some angst around around um, Ricketts land for the first time in a while? Well, I think the angst has been there for, honestly, since the beginning for this baseball operations group. Um, I think there's always been a want of 
having more revenue. So I think in the beginning they were a bit hamstrung and they had to kind of go, uh, you know, looking for help <laughs> from guys they knew uh, who were kind of marginal players, but they, you know, the devils they knew from the, from their days with the Red Sox, Padres in some cases. And you saw a lot of that in the first few years. And uh, then, then they were able to spend. And then this year, I think they were caught a little off guard. It sounded like um, just from the comments they made publicly that they weren't weren't spending mm-hmm. so they didn't make the uh roster upgrades that a lot of their opponents made mm-hmm. they still seemed like a team that could make the playoffs they played well uh they made a couple you know things were going well until early august <laughs> and it just it just went went rapidly south for them from there and that's the second year in a row where they finished uh poorly uh, i actually said something and i think sometime in august about how it's nice that the cubs aren't finishing the season weekly again and then they just and then they go and so, they did you know sometimes you just have to part with managers you just need you need new leadership but they had they had you know they had injuries they had a zillion they some of their best players were knocked out there in the last couple of weeks and of course the brewers managed to lose the best player in baseball and still play very well exactly the that kind of takes that you know normally you'd be like look the cops were without some of their key guys during that slide and you know usually those are the guys you expect to turn it around rizzo was barely able to get on the field Right. Bias, of course, wasn't around. But it's hard to say that when <laughs> Yellis went down and the yeah. Brewers got hot. Yeah. Okay, but one of the things you're saying that I'll admit I didn't know is that, that they are more revenue-constrained than you might have thought. They're not quite the, the spending team that some of the, the, you know, the Dodgers and the They spend a Yankees. lot, but they definitely seem more constrained than one would imagine. And I think some of it's understandable. I mean, when they were acquired, it was such a debt-laden franchise where they were – very much beholden to the league because they were allowed to, you know, the Ricketts were able to acquire more debt than they were supposed to by league standards. Okay. So there was, there was a financial constraint that was understandable was that the franchise had been poorly run by the Tribune company and by Sam Zell for a brief period. And they had to, they had to fix it. Uh, and they've invested a lot around the ballpark. They completely, as a former resident of that neighborhood, it's quite unrecognizable, mm-hmm. and a lot of that their investment. So they're putting money into things outside of the baseball business itself, let alone baseball operations. Uh, so there's definitely a broader investment happening there. I think that's important to look at. That this isn't. I don't think they're just playing to win right now. I think this this family right. they want to own this for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, right. it's a long term. It's a long. I really thing. do. Like Got I know it. there's you know this is. I think there's a difference in maybe how Joe Ricketts sees it than with than his children, but I I do think that that there's somewhat of a constraint. Like this has to be a healthy investment. That's how we do things, and there's Got also there we're gonna we, we don't want to give this up. This is this this is precious. Yep. So yep. building around it, building building for the future, improving their minor league facilities. They've done a lot, but it, what ha- what's happened though is that with the economics in general in baseball, there's disincentive to spend all your dollars. Yeah. And I think that's what you're seeing, not just with the Cubs, but with Boston talking about how they have to drop their payroll. Yeah. Uh, things like that. So, well, listen, we're talking Cubs about it. One of those. We're talking about one of the most interesting teams in baseball, but they are not in the playoffs. And so they're, no, a, little they bit, they're a little bit less interesting right now. You, you, you're R and D for baseball prospectus. And so we don't read your stuff that much, but you're one of the engines behind the stuff that they, those guys, mm-hmm. write, And you got your own thing going on at pitch info. I want to hear more about that, but let's, let's stay with the team theme for a second and talk about some of the highest performing teams 
this year. We're, we haven't yet seen them on the field in the playoffs, but we will very soon. The Astros and the yeah. Dodgers. What is it? What can you tell us about why those guys are so good? What do the data tell us? What do you think the the layperson is missing that you guys who spend so much time digging into this stuff might understand better about why the Astros and Dodgers have been able to perform as well as they have? I think the key thing is that they they perform well over time. I think there's one thing with teams popping up and doing well, uh, and I think there's another thing with you know. <clears throat> doing it consistently mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. And I know it's frustrating for some of the fans, for the Dodgers in particular, like keep just coming just short, but uh, not to invoke Marv Levy too often in life, but getting to the Super Bowl four times in a row is pretty hard to do, even if you didn't win any of them. And I think it's the same thing where you're consistently making the playoffs. Even if the Cubs fell short, they were almost there. Right. Uh, and it, that's that's hard. Yeah, how? Tell, so tell, tell us, take us the next so step I and say how. I think it comes down to player development. Okay. So in order to have a consistent pipeline of talent and be resilient to injury and the vagaries and, and the high variance of the game and yep. how people perform and their psychologies and their the physical limitations of pitchers, uh, you have to have a lot of players coming up constantly. And I think if you even just look at the Cardinals during all their great years in recent memory, that they, as a Cubs fan, what was frustrating was they're constantly bringing up these pitchers who are really good. <laughs> they're constantly bringing up these like no-name infielders who just rake. Yeah. So there's something about the ability to consistently identify players that you can develop. I, I think that it is a closer coupling of scouting and player development. Well, talk about that because historically we would have just said, assessment we just said they just identify you know they draft better that kind of thing but these days the conversation has changed much more towards the development side and yeah, i know and there's I think a this is, we're, when we started you know with pitch info it's up like 10 some odd years ago when i started doing this work it's one of the things we said were likely changes in baseball that can happen from the data revolution and there one is uh you know better advanced scouting you know and another is you have ability to improve more of your pitchers and have a broader base of talent to select from. Mm-hmm. So if you're constantly optimizing to the individual, so this everybody's going to throw uh, a certain type of slider or cutter, which a few famous pitching coaches in recent memory have, have basically taught their guys that right. this is how we pitch. Right. Everybody's going to throw two seamers here. Um, but the teams that are having the most success are the ones that look at the individual pitcher and optimize a plan yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh, so I think when you see a team like the Cincinnati Reds, who just recently partnered with Driveline. Wait, uh, I, let me just know. I want to hear. I want to hear your thoughts on that because that's a very high-profile thing they just did. Yeah, that yeah. happened yesterday. I, or something. And, and more generally, that dichotomy between kind of like te- teaching everybody the same thing versus the is it only really the last ten years of data that you've been able to kind of do this personalized kind of development? I think it's made it more evident that you should. I think good coaching has always been good coaching. And Interesting, right? The the cook, cookie cuttering your people is not. It, it may be good for a, a broad base. It may be good for a lot of things. Um, but when you look at Kyle Bodie, what his business idea was when he started with Driveline, it was most of what he talked about was helping pitchers get to that next level. Whether it was like making their high school varsity team, whether it was getting that D three you know shot, whether it was getting a partial scholarship to a D one team that they couldn't get before, it was all about the optimization of the individual. And then the pros were like, hey, this is a good idea. Uh, and, and it worked for a lot of guys. And I think that's really, I, I think he combined individual focused coaching 
an understanding of individual difference with using data and technology. So real quickly, uh, Driveline is an organization that, that brings guys in and, 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 and all the cameras and the details, and they, they coach very specifically to the players' you know mechanics and needs. And the Reds have just signed him to a, a deal where he's now part of their pitching development staff and working with the minor league pitchers. And he's yeah. somehow still doing the driveline stuff, who has clients with all the teams, presumably. Fascinates me. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely fascinating. But so the Reds, and I even saw a line somewhere that the Reds, you know, the Cubs tried to get him and the Reds yeah, got him. I saw that. Yeah, it was um, funny. The, uh, it was, it, the, report, the, the reporter who said that, like, according to my source, which is me. Like ninety five percent sure his source is Kyle. <laughs> so, okay, okay. I'm pretty sure it's accurate that yeah the Cubs were in on him. Which so what? What? what the Cubs haven't developed pitching. So the the what are the Reds going to do with him and how and that they're jumping out in front of the league and, and grabbing some someone like this presumably or or are they not or someone that the Astros the Astros right have people in house. They're bleeding bleeding edge. I okay. think there's teams that do this stuff quietly and and I think Houston. So they just bought yeah, it in, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now yeah, but saying. this is this is pretty far forward, and it's very public because of, because it's driveline. Right. Um, okay. Okay. This it's and, kind of like, and there's yeah. other places like driveline. Kyle just does a really great job of promoting the the, the techniques and the industry and stuff, okay. and his work and his research. And okay. He's kind of become the the flag for. Right, a, a broader group of people. Right, we're talking to Harry Pavlidis. Harry is the director of research and development at Baseball Prospectus. He's the founder of Pitch Info, and he's the co-host of the Stolen Signs podcast. He's also on Twitter at Harry Pav, at Harry P A V. If you want to follow him up there. So, Harry, this is Eric Bradley. I have a question I want to ask you about the long-term impact that you see of analytics on baseball. Do you see, since one could argue, I'm not saying I do, but one could argue that analytics is the great equalizer, do you think the period of dynasties in baseball, the Braves winning the division, whatever it was, 14 years in a row, and, you know, the Yankees being great for, you know, making playoffs 17 of 19 years, are those days over because analytics will kind of equalize things, scouting will get equalized, player performance will get equalized, or do you not see it as that extreme? I see. I don't think it's going to be that extreme. I think there's some – I do agree with the notion that information is it does start to level the playing field. Uh, and you could see that in the earlier days of when pitch FX data was coming out that certain teams were like, hey, this stuff shouldn't be public. We want to have an advantage, but any advantage you have over based on information or data is is short-lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, so always, it's about the the people who can make good decisions with dirty data are the ones who win. So that's always going to be the case. So I think, right? If anything, you have this. Um, kind of competing thing in baseball right now. And where's <laughs> Where the on dirtiest? And you have this ability for teams to to make these big radical changes. Like Houston did it. Uh, and, you know, Atlanta took Mike Fast, who's one of the key people in Houston in their revolution, and, and he's over there now. Josh Kalk has gone from Tampa to Minnesota. We're starting in the second generation. Mm. The group of people who, researchers who came in the uh, same time I did on 10, 12 years ago, we're, we're getting a little longer the tooth, and we're starting to, you know, have second jobs and second generation work. Um, so you have that. It's moving around a bit. But also there's a, the competing thing in baseball. The, the, not every team is trying to win. We'll say, so more, say more about that. It's uh, the, the weird uh, – uh, there's the tanking problem mm-hmm. in sports in general. And, and there's incentives to lose. Um, you know, there's 
the difference between 77 wins and 79 wins is nothing. So why bother optimizing and, and eking? Might as well just let yourself slide further down, get a better draft choice, things like that. Uh, there's a lot of cost control. The, the Blue Jays bragging about how trading certain players gave them 42 years of control of other guys, and that's it, it's more of an economic thinking than a competitive thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's always been the, the struggle with, with professional sports is that it's a, a business, and it's also supposed to be a competition. So as long as teams have some incentive to not perform, you're going to have dynasties. Because there are some teams that are going to say, the heck with that, we're just going to keep going. We'll pay the luxury tax. Mm-hmm. We'll keep investing. And they will have advantages by simply having a more consistent deployment of resources mm-hmm. and a more competitive mindset as opposed to an optimization and efficiency mindset. But I do think you can still have teams that are dynastic. I do think it is harder because of the ability for people to move around and take their ideas and create change very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, a person, people, the, the best people in the business can go into a team and immediately say, this guy goes, this guy goes, this guy goes. Here's some guys who are, been, who are minor league free agents that we should get. Here's what we should do with these three pitchers in double A and immediately start having dividends from those things. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Luno builds this thing out of nothing in Houston, and then his top two lieutenants a few years later move on over to the Oreos and odds yeah, are five yeah, years Mike, from now they're going to have something yeah. going on. Sig's gone, Mike's gone, Kyle Wire's leaving. I mean, all the, 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 the people that were instrumental in building those things for Jeff are, are have moved on. Yeah, Luno's biggest... great people filling in right behind them. Yeah, right. Uh, so. Yeah, his challenge is not developing players, it's developing executives. <laughs> yeah, but hey, he does a really good job. I mean, there's there's... They keep producing good people, and part of that is because the, the original hires were good hires. Yeah, and so, they established a system. So, Harry, just building on your point that you made, answering my question about the people that make decisions with dirty data will always mm-hmm. win. Where's the dirty data still in baseball? Where everything. is the place? Where is the place where we don't know everything and everything isn't measurable? What, what are the dirtiest areas that you see right now? Well, the data we actually have is dirty. I mean, <laughs> uh, the the there's incomplete data. That, this that's from a pitch in, FX guy, really. Yeah, well, pitch tracking is great. We have that. That's pretty solid now. Um, it's the player tracking. It's the 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 on the field stuff in game where the data is least complete and intact. And we're about to go through a major change in baseball with a new provider, where we're getting the, the Statcast system is going to be all new hardware. Mm-hmm. No more radar. Be purely optical. It's a different setup. So it's a whole set of different problems mm-hmm. uh, technically. So you have to work with that. Um, there's two schools of, or three schools of thought with how to use that data. One is just to take it in from what BAM gives you, and they, they produce some metrics, and you just use those. There's you kind of go and roll your own, or there's more what we try to do with it at, at BP, which for our clients, which is in fix the data <laughs> and impute missing values, you know, and things mm-hmm. like that. There's there's sophisticated things you can do with these 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 sensor systems, mm-hmm. and that's where you know where can you make more complete data is one thing, but also saying okay, we know this data is not 100% accurate. These ballparks are different. There's you know you have to you know the people go through that detail level of data quality, which is a lot of grunt work. We're outsourced, thank you. Uh, they, right. they have advantages there, but it's also a matter of, of just having people with a certain kind of you need a variety of viewpoints, people with different backgrounds. 
um, different understandings of a way of looking at the data because it's, you know, it flies to analyze and statistics, you know, and that's always going to be, whether it's baseball or any other industry, at some point there's uncertainty. And when you can make decisions that fall on the, on the beneficial side of that uncertainty spectrum more often, it's probably because you have a good process right. of, of doing things and also the ability to make decisions. Because as you guys probably know, that the, the most costly decision is the one you didn't make. Mm-hmm. Harry, I have an um, observation and I guess a question. Uh, do you think the universal application of analytics in baseball is creating a uniform product that's less pleasing to this to the spectator to the baseball fan there used to be a wider variance in the ways that teams approach the game that made it i think a more interesting product so now i think you're basically in a in a, a mode where all teams are maximizing win probability in a similar way and as a result you're not getting teams like say like the 1987 cardinals or 1985 cardinals like that stole like 300 bases or whatever and you're not you're not getting teams that are maybe more inclined to approach winning in a more um uh you know unique way based on now hold on we did have the royals do that weird thing of just a couple of years ago right they were just a bunch of slap hitters that that's well they didn't try which is something the astros have kind of done uh, in, in not striking out, so I yeah, think that that's but they're power hitters, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Somehow they're doing both of those things. Somehow they're doing both. <laughs> okay, but 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 I think it's. I mean, I'm just pushing back there because yeah. of this one weird thing that happened with the Royals there recently for a couple of years. But in general, people do complain, and the 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 and of course they complain about the game itself with less you know balls in play, for example. So what's your t- what's your take on that, Harry? I think one of the great traditions in baseball is complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and I agree, I do agree to an extent that the there is, there's been a change in what is the focal point of baseball. And I, I am just from my own perspective and experience, and it's very skewed by how I got into pitch FX data and so into pitching um, in my adulthood. But as I was a kid, it was more you know, always more about the the play overall play of the game, the stealing, the you know. Turning double plays. I mean, it's just the, the, those things are always were the those were baseball things, and you do get a couple less of those things per game now. And you, and you don't have aggressive base stealing because people have figured out that boy, you really got to succeed a lot to do this. That so Ricky Henderson may have been actually costing his team. Wow, you know, thing okay. kind of con, you know crazy ideas like that. Ricky ran too much. You know, don't you know that blasphemy. Um, but it's part, so yeah, there is kind of a narrowing of the band of, 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 of accepted strategies, I think. And where baseball's always been best at dealing with that is tweaking something about the circumstances of play. And well, the, well, the ballpark, are, the ball, I think, the could be the big thing. always going to be a thing, but the, the thing that you can control and tune, the two things, uh, which are the ball. And the strike zone, but can, those, don't you think that some teams are team... the fundamental core things of, of our game? This is about a projectile <laughs> and about a region where the hitter is supposed to protect in the air around mm-hmm. the dish. Mm-hmm. Do you think a team could maximize win uh, win probability to their 
j- just for themselves by making an extreme ballpark. Like I thought, I think that that could be something that, in other words, just make when you just go on the road though. Right, but the but you but you can control your home environment to a large degree by just making a ballpark that's less conducive to home runs, more conducive to defense and base running, for example. And then that way, you're kind of leaning into the uniformity of the game and maybe being able to acquire things that fit your ballpark at, in a more cost-effective way yeah, and I have less competition. That. Yeah. I don't know if it worked. <laughs> one one way in which uh, this is a uh, Shane Jensen. One way in which because one of the reasons sorry to interrupt, but one of the reasons I think the Rockies maybe didn't work is because the ball changed on them too. Right. So the ball has been different in the last year since the Royals. <laughs> uh, the ball has been different. Right. One way in which I think um, the game gets less interesting for me is when all my favorite players are hurt. So one kind of frontier I kind of feel like where analytics is only really kind of starting to get into things is, is, is injury prevention. And, I, and that's a very difficult question because it involves analytics not just of player performance, but you have to start bringing in, you know, physiology and all these kind of medical things. Where do you sort of – do you kind of see that as something that will be making great strides in in the next five years, or do you sort of see that as a farther-off goal? I do. I think one thing that just from the pitch tracking data – uh, it, very early on, there was ability to start predicting injury. Uh, I remember when Josh Clock wrote that article. It was, that was the last thing he wrote before the Rays hired him. Uh, you know, he, that's what he was doing. He was saying, "Hey, we can we can start we can start looking if we can model what and predict when a pitcher is actually having a physical problem." From uh, from watching his from looking at the pitch data, just from looking at the pitch that's data, fabulous, and okay. which is. Fascinating. I think the articles are still out there, either on DP or Hardball Times. I forget. Mm-hmm. I don't think the internet completely purged his work. Uh, so, and now with the advent of these the K Vest products, where hitters can or golfers can put on these strap on some sensors. Not really a vest. Uh, <laughs> you strap on some sensors, and it tells you how all the parts of your body are moving through the swing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they're going to have the same thing for pitchers. And I think you have the you have these sleeves uh, that go over the elbow, which I don't know if pitchers enjoy working with those. But as as the sensor technology improves and the players become more comfortable wearing the things, I think we'll start learning and start being able to do two things. Which one is just full out prevention. You know the the actual precautionary measure. Like we think this is a this this is a risk for you physically. Um, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal with my colleague Andrew Beaton about pitching injuries uh, a, a year or two ago, and we talked to a bunch of medical professionals and pulled some data, and the finding was, uh, according to the medical professionals, that it's really the fastball that causes the Tommy John injury for, for the pitchers, where, where I think you can most leverage some sort of like insight into preventing yeah. injuries, and th- that the thing that causes the injuries... Um, or raises the injury risk is a lack of variance in fastball velocity. So it's not how fast you throw, it's whether you are maximizing your fastball velocity on each pitch. So in other words, it used to be like uh, the Justin Verlander approach where you mm-hmm. could throw 99, but sometimes you would throw 94. When you needed the 99, it was there. And so I think basically one of the things that I would do if I owned a team is I would shut off the radar guns when my team was pitching, and I would put the radar guns on when the other team was pitching. <laughs> Well, you know what's happened, though? The problem is that teams, 
Um, I remember in 2013 or 12, I had I had lunch with the with a with the general manager. We talked about he talked about how he wanted to change how they use pitching. He's like, I'm sick of watching these guys try to pace themselves through six innings. I want them to go throw as hard as they can for three or four. Mm. So, and then that's really where we are, right? I mean, five and dive, that's a long outing. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, both starting pitchers are working in the seventh inning. If we actually say those words out loud when we see that happening in baseball right, now. Right, uh, We Guys are maxing out. And so there's this. And also, you know, if you look at what driveline, one of the big things is the intentionality and, and learning how to do that full effort pitching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, can, can you get uh, away with the full effort, low variance approach if you throw less? I mean, I don't know. A... Uh, but I think I do think there is something to not maxing out. Okay. And I totally get why you want people to max out for their performance. If it's under control and they have good balance and good technique, they, they should be able to still control their pitches right. and throw as hard as they can. Uh, but that's I don't think that's the the, the, the path to longevity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know how there's kind of a, a battle between the longevity and the just use the guy when he's good, use his bullets when he's good. Mm-hmm. So like Tim Lincecum, right? Tim Timmy was a guy who was on like I guess his velocity peaked in high school probably. His mechanics had this guy is not going to his back will not survive written all over it. And so to me, there was this, hey, you could have extended this guy's career by toning those down or using him less as a reliever, cha- changing his workload so he was more likely to stay healthy. And the feedback I got back on that idea from inside the game was that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. <laughs> because he got his Cy Youngs, he got his World Series trophies, and he's gone quicker than he should have been, but you, you got what out of him what the maximum performance was right right and i don't think he would regret that i mean obviously he probably would be happy still playing professional baseball today but i don't think he regrets the success that he had that's interesting so there's this thing about you know do you go ahead and extend your career or do you try and maximize what you're doing yeah that's today? interesting right right and right that's a, this is very that's why these things are hard yep that's <laughs> right. and the teams and players would probably have different opinions on that issue as well it's going to vary for not just to t- really down to each player for each team. You know, it's, it's what's the player's mindset? What's the team's hope for that player? Do they see them as long term? Do they care about the long term? Right. Uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of weird incentives, and sometimes they're competing. Yep. Against each other. Yep. And that's why it's a game. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> Harry. Listen, we got to let you go. Very much appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Love the work that you're doing, and wish you the best with all of it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Harry Pavlidis, he is the director of R&D for Baseball Prospectus. He's also the founder of Pitch Info. You can follow him on Twitter, at Harry Pav, at Harry P-A-V. You can also follow Pitch Info, at Pitch Info. Harry Pavlidis. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Sound engineer Martin Nwaga bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. Cade Massey here hosting with two of my longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow, as well as guest co-host Michael Salfino, renowned, revered sports analytics journalist, Michael Salfino. Michael, you're riding for 538 these days. How's that whole world? What have you, what, what, what's it like riding for, it's a different audience, right? Because you've always had the benefit of riding in these Wall Street Journal 
right. columns, which have a pretty sophisticated audience as sports readers go. And now you've got 538, which has been on the cutting edge for five and a half years now. Yeah. I is mean, it different or is it not different for you writing for 538? It's definitely different. The the um, analytics aspects of the article has to be much more um, involved and sort of uh, uh, gone through, you know, like sort of uh, – it has to it has to be more um, rigorous yeah. than it than it had you to can't be just in the throw journal. Out a statistical observation exactly. It can't be just like the one idea, and you're just writing a short article that's interesting based you're on that go idea. One layer deeper for sure. Yeah, you have to go like two layers yeah, deep yeah. into each article. Um, do you guys like try to one up each other on how how sophisticated, <laughs> analytically sophisticated your articles are? are? You and Neil Payne and Josh Hermsmeyer like giving each other a hard time. Yeah, like? Josh is is Neil and Josh are way more um, statistically uh, qualified than than I am, but I do have um, just a a good knowledge of what's important as far and these guys do as well to to uh to sports and something that can be a really good peg as far as just um resonating with the current landscape of the nfl right and as a writer you need these pegs i mean it's one thing yes. to be able to do some stats i mean when i worked with you it's like okay that's a great stat cavity this is what would actually make a good column you're going to peg <laughs> well, it on something michael that's what i wanted to ask you i mean at the end of the day though while you have to go two levels deeper it does start with you're identifying what's an interesting observation or phenomenon because, you know, it's almost like what Maria was talking about earlier in the show, which is, while you're not necessarily doing math to start with, you have an intuition that says, wow, that's a pretty rare event. That's something that's fairly strange. Now let's try to understand statistically exactly. an explanation, but without yeah. that, I'll call it mathematical intuition. might be the comment you've made about Belichick. It's like, yeah, he's not analytical. Well, great. Yeah, because he knows essentially the three or four options he's to go with. He's naturally analytical. Yeah, he's it, it, he's it almost, got this intuition that basically he, he's not... He's pruned off his, so his many alternatives. I, I read his statement as, I'm not going to go away from my intuition based on some bought or something like that in during an in-game decision okay let's t let's stay with this for a moment though because so one i've got to believe that some percentage of that was posturing oh yeah he agree right um but then two we got to be careful how much we generalize this because he's at the limit he's saying basically i don't care about history i don't care about anything that's general i only care about the unique circumstances of this situation yeah. and that's that's great if you are such the expert that you can do that. You're essentially omniscient. You don't need history. You can. You but can, he's omniscient in part because of that history. I mean, he must recognize that, right? He's been breaking down film for literally yeah. started with his father but, but, this but, for forty but years. So has every other coach who's seventy years old, and they they can't. Do it. Everybody can't do this. It is such a dangerous road to go down. We have to be so careful at the extent to which we reify this. This guy's like, yeah. I mean, he's probably setting analytics back a little while, which is fine because those guys who believe in it will have an edge for longer then. But to say this is the this is the battle you always fight when you've got a model and you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in models. They go, well, what about the wind? Well, what about the defense? Well, what about the weather conditions? And they've got 16 whatabouts. And they're right. They might matter, but they're going to make a worse decision. Yep. Almost everybody, 90% are going to probably more than 90% are going to make a worse decision by trying to consider all 16 whatabouts, weigh them appropriately, judge them appropriately right. in the moment, weigh them appropriately, than if they just listen to history that said, in these circumstances for the last 10 years, 
So it's he gets on this high horse. I don't care about the last ten years. So maybe he, maybe he. I don't think he can do it as well as he thinks he can. No, but, and, and and I mean it. It does argue, given what we know, that it's probably just gamemanship on his part. But say like saying be, that before Kahneman and Tversky or whatever, and like if somebody is not prone to the biases and decision making, they. They didn't need that. They probably were just like that. In other words, those things existed. People who were who were just really good at making decisions without really knowing what the sort of structural framework and what the terminology was. So maybe Belichick, who has broken down all this film, is able to categorize it in his head in that's, a way that's more prone to expert decision making. Yeah, that's Michael. That's the way I I thought of it too. You know, one of my favorite quotes of all time was when, um, since I'm also a chess player and followed chess a lot, was when Gary Kasparov first played Deep Blue, the IBM computer, and one uh, one of the um, interviewers or reporters asked him, you know, it can do a hundred million calculations a second. You know, it can lose look eighteen moves ahead. How are you going to possibly beat it? And his comment, which reminds me of this situation, was, he goes, I basically have pruned off 99.9999% of the options as being totally irrelevant and obviously bad choices. Therefore, I'm only selecting between five to six choices. I believe that's what Belichick, yes. because of experience, can do well. Now, can he be improved? By a computer, a machine learning algorithm that helps him sort amongst those five to six or even ten options. I believe absolutely he can. But that's what I believe to me. That's how I interpreted what he's saying. I can prune off 99.9% of the options as being bad to begin with. Right. And that leaves me a smaller set to which then, yeah, maybe my judgment holds. So I, I, that sounds right to me. The last thing I'll say about this is. One, it's not that everyone should just replace their judgment with models. The best decisions, the most complicated decisions should be a combination of these things. And we need to figure out better how to collaborate between experts and models. But the other is that even if I wanted to grant Belichick this ability, I'm not going to grant it to many people. And moreover, right. more people are going to claim it than can actually execute it. That's the fundamental observation from psychology is that people are too sure they can do these things. Even if some can more believe they can than actually I, I think one other point on this might be, and here's where he may be right in the following sense. As you guys know, probably the best use of statistical models for most people, for everybody, is to say, I want to prune off the bad options. Once This has been studied in statistics for a long time. Once you prune off the bad options, it's not obvious analytics can help him pick amongst the 10. In yes. other words, this is the classic, you know, go, we're here at the University of Pennsylvania campus. Everyone's a great student. There's no correlation between people's ability and GPA once you're here. But tests help you decide potentially who should be here. Belichick could be arguing analytics helps pruning, but I can do pruning. Once I've pruned amongst a set of fairly equivalent options, maybe math doesn't help as much. Right. I, may, hope or, that, or, I hope or, that's what he means. Or, or maybe those like contexts like wind or whatever, somehow those actually he's able to incorporate those in a way that like sort of taking the best analytical option is no longer necessarily the best option for him. Have we pruned the college football landscape to six viable national championship contenders? Is that fair to say? We're five weeks through the season. We're entering games week six. Can we say there are only six teams that can do this? No. So the six teams that there's clearly a top tier, it's one of the most interesting features about the season. It's unique in the seasons that I've been watching closely for the last, whatever, 10, 10 12 years analytically. Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, LSU, Georgia, Clemson, in some order, 
our consensus and have been for a couple weeks. We put those teams all within about six points of each other. And then there's a six point gap to number seven. Yeah. So there really is this top tier. And when we run our sims to ask about winning the national championship, the top six count for something like 96% of the probability. Well, I mean, you, you're running sims, so you hopefully, I, I assume you can answer the question. I, I kind of feel like, you. I mean, you know, if I if I had to predict, those would be the six teams that it, that are kind of there in the contention at the end of the year. But I mean, Auburn could beat Alabama. Oh, yeah. Penn State no, could sure. beat Ohio that's, State. That's yeah. where I'm you know, thinking. I mean, that, so and your Sims build that in. So I kind of how how often do those kind right. of like next they tier happen. get in they there? Ha- they absolutely happen. But then, and it's which, a one trial outcome. Well, like this when is they the play. Thing, but but they no, have. No, but they're they're doing they're, Sims. You're but, doing simulations. No, but on what it. I mean is when they actually play yeah, yeah. in real but, life. But Michael, that's not. This is the thing that's not true. This is what makes it robust because these guys, a lot of these teams, play each other in regular season. Then they play each other in the SEC championship, and then they play two playoff games, and so. An Auburn beating an Alabama or a Penn State beating an Ohio State is that's going to happen before the season's over. But that doesn't mean that one of these six teams isn't going to win the well, national championship. Well, that's the point. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I want to bring up with Cade. So, I would, the first two teams that came to my mind, just because of the way the Big Ten works, is why not Penn State or Wisconsin? You're right. Penn State or Wisconsin could make the college football playoff. Let's see them beat two of those other teams to yeah, win the national title. That, that's the part I just don't see. I mean, can they beat three? Like, can they beat yes. Ohio State? Let's. I'll make it up. Can they beat Ohio State, Oklahoma, and then Alabama or Clemson? No. They they, they can't. No. Yeah, of course they can. Are they going to? <laughs> yeah. Come so on. Which of these no. six teams? Which of these six teams do you least believe in? LSU. I would say the team with the worst offense based on your statistics right here, which of, would be. Uh, well, the remarkable thing is that those are the six best offenses in the country. Right. Isn't that amazing? Is, so you're, you were oh, going to say because offense matters so much. Yeah, it matters so much that those are the six best offenses yeah, in the but country. But what I mean is look at Alabama is, is far better than all but. Um, one of those other teams. So you're you're looking at not just the ranking, but the absolute rating on offense. Because there's I, it's less there's less variance in offense, as yeah. you well know, so than there a, is in defense. And you're pointing out there's a big gap. So we've actually had Oklahoma number one offense all 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 season, and now Alabama clipped them, but they're right there neck and neck. But they're a good four five points in some cases seven eight points better just on the offensive side of the ball right that's how much their head and shoulders offensively are better than the by the way did teams. you the question you want to ask us by the way conditional on getting into the playoffs who do i believe in the least because no, the thing, okay the reason i'm saying lsu is i'm just looking at their schedule and i'm looking at the path they have to take to make it into the college football playoff i mean you look at clemson and you look at their path to the college football playoff, even that, you'd have to then believe that LSU has a much greater chance of winning it, conditional on getting there, to put them at the same level as Clemson. Mm. Clemson's schedule is just much easier. I know. So the one I'm, the one I'm skeptical, skeptical about, but I'm also I'm biased against, I'm, I want Oklahoma. to not be good, yeah. is Oklahoma. Because they really the haven't defense. played anybody yet. Yeah, and the defense is by far, I mean, we, we have them like the 24th defense in the country, and the worst next defense out of that top six is like i don't know fifth or something it's something these are really good defenses and really good offenses it's the worst unit of the 12 units in that top six and they're going to probably be playing a great offense they will by and that's the problem that's right but also they just haven't played anybody yet we're going to find out next weekend i'm not saying texas is going to beat them but texas is going to give them a fight that they haven't Mm -hmm. seen anything close where's the game yet it's always in Dallas, Eric. I've been with you for five and a half okay. years. Come on, man. we got to get no. you there. That's a neutral site game. It's Well, it's not. 
Whenever it's they play, always a neutral site game. The regular season game is oh, now okay. that they might sometimes meet in the in the conference championship. They might play. They're going to play that somewhere else. But they always play in the Cotton Bowl, old school, old school Cotton Bowl, the original Cotton Bowl. Have been playing there for a long time. All right, guys. There's not much. I have to say, I've been disappointed in college slate. This is the second. This is actually the third weekend this season. That's just not very interesting. I mean, I'm fishing for games. I was going to Michigan. I mean, Michigan's really struggling. Well, yeah. That's about Auburn, th- Florida? I hope uh, Michigan will probably be an entertaining game, even if it's not particularly consequential to the Well, it's consequential in that we can championship picture. That's right. I mean, th- these teams, neither one, are probably going to do it. But can somebody give Ohio State more fight? Is, is Michigan going to turn the ship at all? I agree with Eric. The best, the highest profile game is Auburn, Florida. Auburn is on that tier, and really both of these teams are just on the tier outside that top six. We This is an interesting one for us because everyone loves Auburn, and we love Auburn. But... Florida is a little bit under the radar, and we've liked Florida all season long, and we don't make them as big a dog as the as the as the lines do. So this is a three point line, and we think no, 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 is that right? Yeah, we think it should be about even, and it's a three point line. So it's a it's a pretty good edge on Florida, but that's kind of it. Baylor, here's an interesting one. This is kind of maybe this is a Big Twelve thing, but Baylor is better than people expect. They they had they won a nice game last year last week against Iowa State, but Baylor's really snuck up there. We have them now, where are they, in the top 30 somewhere, and they're hosting Kansas State. No, they're going to Kansas State. Kansas State's been a lot feistier. But when we're talking about Baylor and Kansas State, we're party for yeah. you know, This is college football not not doing its best for us right now. And it's been a couple weeks, as you said. There's yeah, not been really a bunch of marquee matchups. Yep, yep, yep. All right, so uh, before we turn to professional, let's do get a little bit more on baseball, just just. To, Get Salfino. We have Salfino here. So I know we got a little bit from you on the, your outlook, Michael, and you said, look, I think it's hard to say because it's mostly just coin tosses at this point, but give us something. If you had to say something other than it's just a bunch of 60-40 guys, what do you want me to say? If you had to say something else, what would you say? Always the best team. So you would have to say the Astros and the Dodgers. I mean, there okay, is then, the, then the pick, greater probability that the better team wins. Then pick between those. And, and if those guys do end up playing each other in the World Series, why That would be amazing, team? by the way. That was very entertaining two years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great World Series. What, what? I think the Astros just have a deeper lineup, you know, um, which is just a, a natural byproduct of playing in the American League. Yeah, I saw the um, I saw the Yankees play the Dodgers in L.A. Not this time when I was obviously out, but the last time I was out in L.A. And that's what I felt about the Dodger lineup. The Yankees handled them pretty easily. And there are two guys, maybe three at most, that you have to worry about on the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. But you pitch around them, and I'm looking at the rest of this lineup. I'm comparing it even to the Yankees lineup, which was, at that time, by the way, half the team was injured. And I'm thinking, the Yankees lineup, injured, is better than this Dodgers lineup from top to bottom. I just don't believe they'll score enough runs against a great pitching team. They do have a, a deeper staff, though, I think. Uh, starting staff. Now, that obviously mm-hmm. is... is the importance of that is mitigated in, That's a, in my, a postseason. Exactly. But still, I think even when you get to the third or fourth starter, and there's a likelihood in all these series that four guys are going to pitch uh, in in the World Series. So I think I don't know. We get, Yan- I know it's just one game. Yankees faced Ryu. One of right. Them, I think the final score was eleven to one in the game. I mean, the Yankees absolutely shelled this guy, and you know, I just didn't. I've watched a bunch of his games since. Well, I, he's he's kind of hit the wall. He's never really been a guy that's pitched over. So is he one of the guys innings. you're counting on if you're a Dodger fan? Well, he's been so successful all year that I think, in fairness, if he's your fourth starter in the postseason, I think you're in pretty good shape. But um, you know, Bueller, Kershaw, 
Um, I think that they have other options. They have a multiple. They have a multitude of options for that for those third and fourth. And how slots. much weight do you think is on Kershaw in this postseason again? I think Kershaw's like postseason uh, weakness is overrated. I think he's generally been uh, unlucky in some instances mm. in terms of home runs. But if you look at his stats in totality. Uh, for the all of the postseason games, it's not that bad. That's great. Good little baseball as we roll into the second wild card game tonight and then on to the division races. But we've got a little football to talk about between now and then. Omaha! Moneyball matchups. All right, we haven't talked that much NFL. We can pick up a little bit as we go through these games, but Eric, you've got some matchups there. You want to walk us through? Well, I got a I got a ton of matchups, but let me start with you guys since I'll yeah. run the Moneyball matchup segment. Let me start with Shane Jensen. Which game has caught your eye this week? Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about the Rams just because they are certainly a weird team this year, and and Tampa Bay uh, uh, took them out behind the woodshed last week. So I would like to see what they do against Seattle. I think that Rams-Seattle game is going to be uh, very illuminating, I think, for the extent to which the Jared Goff's weaknesses continue to be exposed by a always a fairly well-run defense. And, and, and yeah, so I, I'm kind of excited to see what happens and there. And, of course, there's been a huge amount of complaining by Rams, but they've been yeah. doing it consistently. That game's tomorrow night. That yeah. is the Thursday night game. And the Rams have said for years they don't understand why the NFL is playing games on Thursday. And so, you know, it's a short week. So that's a I mean, look. That's, I, I like I like games on Thursday, though. I'm sure the players feel differently about so, it. So, Michael, <laughs> you get to pick a game. What what what's caught your eye this week? Um, I would say old school, like the Packers Cowboys. Yeah. I think yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. a great one. That's a great game. Interesting game. Um, who is that going to tell you more about? Like, is it going to tell you more about who do you have more confidence in? Will you learn more about the Cowboys or the Packers in this game for you? I think the Cowboys are a better team, but I think that the problem that they've been having, if you look at their stats each week, their percentage of pass plays on first and second down has decreased. So it's almost like the Ezekiel Elliott effect where he actually it's actually like hurting the team because they're just not maximizing play success by throwing on the early downs because they feel like they can't because they got to, you know, feed Elliott. So the line there is three and a half to the Cowboys. They're hosting. Who do you have? Um, I'm going to take the, the the Packers in this game just because I just don't like the way the Cowboys are playing offensively. That okay. that Saints game was alarming to me. So, by the way, Massey Peabody has a pretty good size edge on the Cowboys there. They don't know this offensive play call. Yeah. Plus, you know, I would say maybe they'll learn and improve it. Kate, what game do you like this you know, week? Of course, we have Raven Steelers. That's been a great one over the years. Not quite yeah. as shiny right now, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go, and well, I'll be the very. The Steelers interested. aren't far behind in the division. <laughs> Nobody is. Nobody is. Mason Rudolph is gonna be an interesting story to watch develop. Obviously, I'm gonna go Monday night with uh, Browns Niners. You know, it's as much fun to pull against teams as it is to pull for them. And Browns are my my pull against team this year. And the Niners are interesting. Oh, yeah. They're they're playing well. They've got this super innovative offense. and Only undefeated team in the NFC now. Four running backs under 200 pounds, which I think is an interesting story. So there's a lot of fun to watch on Monday night. By the way, the line there is Niners by three and a half. And we don't think that's enough. So um, I I I like that game for lots of reasons. Not to mention... Think about that division. You've got the Rams, the Seahawks, and the Niners now all competing for that division. And I think, obviously, with me, it's a trick question what game has caught my eye. 
Tampa Bay rolls into New Orleans for the division now lead. The winner of that game will be leading the division. The Buccaneers put up 55 on the Rams. We heard that. The Saints, without Drew Brees, who has been, I mean, I've never, I've been to probably 10 Buck Saints games. Brees always throws for 800 yards and seven touchdowns. I like the Buccaneers in that game. I think the Buccaneers keep the momentum going and head straight in New Orleans. If I could go to that game, I would be there. You can go, Eric. You can go. I'm well, sure maybe I will. Bridgewater is just, you know, I, I, they're the they're the shell of the Saints right now with Bridgewater at quarterback. I don't understand if Sean Payton thinks that Taysom Hill is the next Steve Young and Taysom Hill is 29. What's he waiting for? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what how they, how they work through that stuff. But I have to say, I mean, I'm a college football guy to the core – and I'm more interested in the NFL slate right now. I, I first time in my life this Great ever point. happened. I went to play a football podcast yesterday. I was going to be in the car for about 45 minutes. I want one little entertainment. I chose Kevin Clark's Ringer podcast over a college football podcast. I've never done that in my life, and it happened yesterday. Well, it's, fortunately, we have them both at the same time. It, I mean, next week, you'll be back to college football. I'm convinced. Probably, next week, I will. Texas, Oklahoma next week. That's a big one. All right, fellas, that's been two hours. That's been another Wharton Moneyball. Big thank you to Michael Salfino for making the drive down here and joining us in studio. Big thanks to Audie Weiner, who's in the classroom right now. From Shane Jensen, from Eric Brattle, this has been Cade Massey. Thank you, Matty D., boss man, for running us, as always. And Martin Nawaga, appreciate you being on the team. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.